listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Kokoroe Hawkins, Tokuiwa. Coming up... The drought emergency was declared for the whole of Kiribati, which is a country of 119,000 people. We hear about the work being done to help drought-affected communities in Kiribati. Also... Uh, our message to the public is uh, to be uh, responsible and follow the law. Concerns are growing over road safety in Tonga and later on we check in on work that's underway to improve support services for Pacifica immigrants. Supporting um, family members, church members, our neighbours, friends, neighbours, anybody that comes over from the islands. Communities in Kiribati are being prepared for the worst impacts of a long-running drought which is not showing any signs of letting up. The Kiribati government in June declared a state of disaster after the discovery of high salinity levels in monitoring wells and very low rainfall. Joining me from Tarawa is the head of UNICEF in Kiribati, Nick Rice-Shudeau. Kurawa, Nick, thank you for joining us on Pacific Waves. Tell us just how bad is this drought? So, Koroi, droughts are not new to Kiribati, um, and drought-like conditions have been experienced uh, for the past few years in the country. Um, and this drought emergency is a symptom of the climate crisis, and it has become a new normal for the people of Kiribati. The government has declared a state of disaster for the entire country in June of this year, following high salinity levels and key monitoring wells and low rainfall over the past six months that were below historical record. Um, one thing to remember is that a drought is a slow onset emergency, and it affects, um, its effects are felt more intensely over time. The drought in Kiribati right now is affecting communities in different ways and more acutely for households who rely on wells that have become brackish over time or for households who rely on rainwater harvesting. These households may experience the drought in, in more severe ways than people who have access to a piped water system. But even then, for the people who have a piped water connection in South Tarawa, where 53% of the country's total population resides, the Public Utilities Board has limited uh, water service to a few hours per day and only a few days per week. How many people are affected and in what different ways are they affected? Thank you, Koroi. So the drought emergency was declared for the whole of Kiribati, which is a country of 119,000 people. But from the rainfall and well-monitoring data, we know that the forecast is more dire for the southern islands of the Gilbert Group. Um, over 94,000 people, or almost 80% of the country's total population, lives on those islands and is therefore at higher risk. Um, within a household, we know that women and girls are typically more impacted than other members. Uh, women and girls are often responsible for bathing children, uh, changing babies, cleaning the house, cooking and preparing meals, and other domestic responsibilities. So the lack of access to safe water will directly impact them and their health, which makes them more vulnerable during a drought emergency. Uh, from a 2019 survey in Kiribati, UNICEF uncovered that 85% of the tested water sources and 91% of household water uh, was contaminated with E. coli. The drinking water at almost all sources and homes in the central and southern Gilbert group were contaminated with E. coli. And this is in normal times. So during a drought, when water becomes scarce, many people sacrifice hygiene practices like hand washing with soap or bathing. And this has a direct impact on children's health, on their nutrition, and that can eventually lead to an increase in cases of diarrhea, skin infections, or malnutrition. Um, Households have to fetch water at alternative locations than they usually do, and the transport, the storage, and the handling of water from the water point to the home presents a lot of risk for potential contamination. 
Um, and one thing to note is that the drought is not just affecting households. Uh, the, the Ministry of Education, um, through them, UNICEF has received reports that uh, schools have been impacted, especially those that rely on uh, shallow wells that have become too brackish or rainwater harvesting systems that have run dry. Um, we know that children are not able to learn or concentrate well in school um, if they are dehydrated. And the lack of access to water in schools has, uh, has a direct impact on children's education, on their health, uh, on their well-being. And for instance, it is uh, disproportionately affecting girls who cannot adequately manage their menstrual health and hygiene. So the impacts of the drought are really multifaceted, and they are felt in many different ways, but tend to impact certain communities, households, or individuals who were already vulnerable before more acutely than others, and especially children. Yeah, no, it sounds sounds terrible. Um, what what I guess what kind of solutions and assistance is UNICEF engaged with with local authorities? So uh, together with partners, UNICEF is providing immediate on-the-ground support to the government with the drought response. We are working to ensure that children and their families affected by the drought have access to safe drinking water as well as adequate hygiene services to protect them against waterborne diseases. Uh, UNICEF is uh, currently providing essential emergency supplies, including first response uh, household water, sanitation, hygiene, and dignity kits to approximately 25,000 people in Kiribati. Uh, this consists of items such as uh, collapsible uh, water containers, a bucket with lids, water purification tablets, and soap. The purpose of those kits is to ensure that families can maintain uh, adequate hygiene at all critical times. In addition, UNICEF has provided the government with portable uh, water field testing kits that will allow authorities to monitor water quality at both the source and at household levels. We're also going to be procuring uh, portable desalination units that will allow communities in remote islands to increase their access to water by providing an alternative source of water supply. And UNICEF is also supporting the government of Kiribati on risk communication and community engagement, which is critical during a, a drought because communities must be aware of the drought conditions and prepare themselves as these conditions prevail over the next few months. A follow-up on that. How many of these kits do you need? And I guess how much do they cost? And do you have enough money for enough kits for the areas that you would like to cover? So the the Southern Gilbert group is the most uh, impacted area of the country. And uh, the how the hygiene kits that UNICEF is providing um, are for for households of five. And they cover the the basic needs for how for health and hygiene for the household uh, for a one month period. Uh, we've mobilized 5,000 of those kits, so we can cover 25,000 people in Kiribati, which we are targeting the most uh, vulnerable communities uh, in those remote areas. Uh, those are actually one of the best investments that we can make in a drought because uh, the return on investment in terms of cost savings for, uh, uh, for hygiene are tremendous. It's one of the most impactful interventions we can, we can make to ensure that the health and the hygiene needs of a family are protected and the uh, the desalination um devices like are those are those easy to operate how many i guess how many families would one device serve and and is there much i guess is how like do they need is there much that needed to run them i, I would imagine power is an issue in that in the islands thanks koroi so those uh portable desalination units um 
are, they're not a silver bullet solution, but they're part of the water supply portfolio that we need to expand. And um, it will provide much relief to families that otherwise would not have any other supply uh, uh, of, of water. So when the wells become too dry or the, uh, the rainwater harvesting systems are too low, then um, those desalination units are, are the last resort. Um, they are fairly low maintenance and uh, easy to operate, but they do require training and they are indeed uh, powered uh, with diesel. So they, they come at a cost. And this is why we are looking at those as a, as a last resort for communities that are really the most direly affected. How long is this, this drought expected to go on for, these drought conditions expected to go on for? And I guess what else is needed to help people through this? So the drought conditions, Koroi, are forecasted to continue at least until the end of the year. Um, and droughts are not new to Kiribati, but they have become more frequent, uh, they last longer, and they are more intense. And this is a new normal for a country like Kiribati on the front lines of the climate uh, crisis. Like many countries in the Pacific, uh, the, the climate crisis in Kiribati will largely be felt through too much water or not enough water. And this is why UNICEF is responding to the most acute pressing needs of the most vulnerable communities right now, while also working on long-term interventions that will increase the capacity and resilience of communities to prepare and respond to future natural disasters like droughts. Um, UNICEF is supporting the government of Kiribati to work with local experts and communities to be able to respond to the climate crisis in the long term. For example, um, we're procuring um, groundwater monitoring equipment that will allow experts to measure the depth and thickness of freshwater lenses in outer islands, as well as the salinity of groundwater. And this type of equipment will allow authorities to map, uh, monitor, analyze, and report on groundwater resources over time. And that will allow for stronger, more informed, and evidence-based uh, decision-making on climate resilience in the future. Concerns are growing over road safety in Tonga. Four people have died following three fatal crashes within six days. One of the deaths is a two-year-old child. Tonga Police Deputy Commissioner for Operation Command Tevita Vailea, who has been working for police for 30 years, told Lydia Lewis it's very concerning given this year's road toll stands at eight. Six people died in total last year. Uh, our message to the public is uh, to be uh, responsible and follow the law because we identify all these fatal accidents. Uh, the contributing factor was speeding, reckless driving under influence, and also the vehicles not being uh, roadworthy. So, some police believe that this incident is preventable, but we urge parents and uh, our people in the society to be vigilant and also take responsible, responsible for, for the children. For example, uh, those that are not uh, having a driving license means that they are not allowed by the law to drive on the road. Also, with those drivers, they should be take precaution and be more careful while driving on the road and consider other road users. And all of these fatalities, I understand, were sadly young people. You just mentioned before the contributing factors. Were all of the drivers under the influence of alcohol speeding and did not have compliant, safe vehicles? Yes. Uh, one of the, the victims is a, a two-year-old pedestrian 
two drivers at, at the age of um, 16 and 20. And the fourth death uh, was a 22 years uh, old uh, passenger. So it's pretty clear that uh, um, young age taking on the, the vehicle on the road uh, is, is another concern for Tong Police. It's our priority uh, focus on safe, safer homes, safer community, and safer roads. Uh, but we can't do it alone without the support and working in partnership uh, with the community and the general uh, public. And you've been in this line of work for decades now, but I'm sure every time you and your colleagues turn up to the scene of a horrific crash like one of these, it never gets any easier. Can you please tell me from your own experience what the personal toll instances like this take on you and your colleagues? Yes, uh, it is one of our, our priority, one of the Tonga Police priorities, that looking at the health and, and uh, well-being of our staff, considering when we turn up to those uh, scenes where people are serious injury and, and uh, fatal uh, crash uh, and moment. And it's always not easy for, for our staff to experience those but at the same time, it is our, our, our job uh, to do. And one of the hard things for, for us, for our, from our experience, that uh, when we go out to families and knock on their door uh, and inform that the loved ones have uh, passed away in this uh, sort of uh, situation. Can you give me a timeline of what happened at each of these incidents? The first incident happened uh, uh, late uh, last Friday evening, around 7 o'clock, uh, where uh, a driver uh, driving in the, one of the villages in the eastern district of uh, Tongatapu, and uh, he didn't realize that a uh, two-year-old uh, boy was standing beside uh, on the roadside, while the parents on the opposite side uh, near the, the, the coastal area uh, and it was by accident that he didn't realize it. Uh, unfortunately, the two-year-old boy was taken to the hospital and uh, later on uh, pronounced uh, that he passed away. Following the that one was uh, early on Sunday morning before six o'clock in the morning uh, the second incident uh, happened in the district of uh, Wabao, to the north of uh, Tonga Group, where the 16-year-old boy and the 20-year-old boy, that, uh, they, they were driving one of the main roads uh, at the Niyafu, heading south, while one of the drivers was heading uh, north on the same uh, road. And the speed and also the inexperience of the driver uh, that caused lost control of the vehicle and uh, ended up with this uh, fatal accident. And the driver was uh, passed away at the scene. His passenger was later on uh, pronounced dead at a uh, hospital. The first one was uh, early yesterday morning, around 2.45 early morning. The 20-year-old female was driving in a uh, Red Bull 
Duke or one of the, the main mode in the Newcastle area. And uh, again, he lost control and hit uh, a block fence one of the residents and then it was a electric pole where the, uh, he suffered head injuries and uh, passed away. That's horrible. Yes. In your statement, your media statement, you mentioned something quite powerful about people only having one life. What is your message to young people and to families? about the seriousness of not driving under the influence. We only have one life. We advise the public, especially the parents, to make sure that they do not allow the, the children, especially when they are underage, uh, not allow them to drive a vehicle without a license and also uh, consider that uh, alcohol has always been the, the main driver of um, not only crime but all, also the uh, fatal accident and, and both death. This is an uh, alarming call for us and we continue to strengthen our partnership with, with the public through uh, education and awareness and also uh, invest more uh, in the uh, road safety uh, area of policing. The Education Minister in the Papua New Guinea Autonomous Region of Bougainville says she's very happy that an on-the-ground assessment is now underway into the damage caused by the Panguna mine. In 2021, Bougainville communities, led by Cabinet Minister and Loro MP Theonila Rokamatbob and helped by the Australian Human Rights Law Centre, successfully filed a human rights complaint against multinational Rio Tinto over the damage its Panguna mine had caused. They allege the massive volume of waste pollution left by the mine was continuing to have severe environmental and human rights impacts and putting lives and livelihoods at risk. Rio Tinto committed to pay for an independent assessment of the damage, and that has begun. The initial desktop assessment using satellite images shows the precarious state of the tailings dam and the possibility it could burst at any time, along with the recent destruction of fertile river flats after tailings forced a key river to change course. Ms. Matbob told Don Wiseman this is what the community had always suspected. Yes, absolutely. What's been found lately was that there are actually two acute, like high-risk areas it will be able to create another lot of disaster for the locals and also with the biggest one that's currently, as I speak today, there's hands-on physical um, assessment that's happening right now, but that's being done by Tetra Tech Coffee. We speak to be able to ensure if the findings that have been done through the desktop research are actually really, I mean, you know, it's really physical on the ground. So, yeah, at the moment, I mean, there, there's an assessment that's going on at the moment as we speak. Clearly, you wouldn't be surprised by what they found from this desktop work. Well, it was expected, actually, even, you know, when uh, Tetra Tech Coffee was given the opportunity to present to the Oversight Committee, which is comprised of the traditional clans and the different stakeholders, you know, it was just the fulfillment 
actually verifying through the scientific researches what the people have always suspected. So it's a high copper sulfate in the Augusta Bay and also um, the terrible diversion of the tailings waste into the arable land areas and then the collapsing of the levee. So all of these things were actually expected. So the findings were just there to, you know, verify that, yes, it is true. Just explain to me then, at this point in time, there's still a a vast amount of, of water or fluid of some sort that's in the tailings dam. Very much. It's like Panguna Mine closed some 30 years or 33 years back. But the activities of what it was, you know, what it left, what Rio Tinto left behind is still very much the everyday impact to the people. So the waste, everything, you know, it's it's still very destructive. And, you know, there's high level of chemicals that are still present, which the desktop review has verified. Yes, and at any time, the walls of that tailings dam could collapse. Anytime. Well, I mean, I'm actually just looking forward to the report that's going to come out after, you know, the two weeks of the Enson assessment that's happening right now. But already there are signs of it collapsing, but there are already a lot of, um, you know, these concrete bricks that were built, they've already collapsed and there's like craters formed already. Water is already diverted. So, I mean... It's a matter of time before another disaster comes in. You're in government, of course. So I guess the government needs to be thinking about moving these people who are living downstream in the, in the path of where this overflowing tailings excess could go. We've actually tried calling for eviction and all of this, but, you know, in Bougainville, as well as in other parts of the Melanesian region, it's very hard for people to move out, you know, given that the connectivity between the human society and the land is something that's much more deeper than just a physical thing. So we've, the government has already issued a um, call to the community to already start thinking of relocation. But people do not want to move. They just want Rio Tinto to fix its mess. Because they said, if we move, where are we going to go? Our sacred sites are here. So that's been a bit of, you know, fight going on that people do not want to move, but they want the tons of waste to be removed. <laughs> New Zealand's Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment is currently refreshing its refugee and migrant strategies to try and improve support services for immigrants. On Thursday, the ministry hosted a Talanoa session with the Pacific communities to understand the needs of Pacifica immigrants. It's one of many different consultative processes currently underway for the strategy refresh. Participants of the session included co-directors of Blue Spur Consulting Group, Seprina Fale, and Mandy Sitia Momoisia, who run their own settlement services for Pacifica immigrants. They spoke with Susanna Suisuiki about the realities Pacific immigrants face in New Zealand. Mandy Sitia Momoisia began their talanoa talking about the support Pacifica communities have provided in the past for extended family and relatives coming to Aotearoa. So anybody um, that's born and raised here in New Zealand or um, came across in the 1960s or before that will know the story of um, set of, of supporting um, family members, church members, our neighbours, friends, neighbours, anybody that comes over from the islands. Um, we've been, um, well, like I was saying earlier, I've been doing this since I can remember um, 
just in high school even, um, being chased down the road to, to help somebody um, fill out a form, to open their bank accounts, to helping um, family members enroll into school. Um, they still, even today, um, I still get um, asked to come in and help family members who want to find rental homes or want to own a home. They want to know about mortgages, cars, things like that. So I've been doing it personally since I was 16, um, around that age. And I know that in everyone um, that has had family members come through their houses um, will know what I'm talking about. But the um, settlement service was officially established in August, sorry, June, June 2019 through our charity called Blue Spirit Charitable Trust. Um, and we run the program, which is the Pacific Settlement Support Program. Um, we officially started though in August of 2019 when we saw the need um, to just start, to just go and do it. Um, there's been a lot of talk, a lot of uh, discussion for years and years and years about um, organizing some kind of support for people who are coming over from the islands. Um, and now we are finding um, a lot of issues arising from the lack of support. So uh, Sabrina, myself and uh, Laura Kyle, we just had a chat. We decided we're just gonna go do it. And we established a um, program that has been running now um, for a couple of years. Maybe I'll ask you, Sabrina, this question. What gaps did you notice with the current support that the government have in place or has in place in terms of um, settlement services? Um, in as far as Pacifica people are concerned, none. Uh, something that's Pacifica-led and Pacifica-driven um, has its values and cultural um, know-hows uh, embedded into it. There's nothing that exists at the moment. Uh, there is a, a migrant service, I believe they've changed their name now to Believe Aotearoa. I can't really remember. Belong, uh, Belong Aotearoa, something like that, uh, before there were migrant services. So I, I, I believe that was sort of the main migrant service provider that existed. I think they used to have something called Pacifica way back, but then they discontinued that part. There's quite a lot of services now that sort of look at, they brand themselves as a settlement support by way of providing employment, um, doing up CVs and getting them to find a job. Um, and then, but you find that a lot of the immediate need for these people, these people may not necessarily be finding a job. Say, mm -hmm. for example, people that come on a quota, one person in that family would already have a job offer. Mm -hmm ready to go to that job. So immediately, job for them is not the issue. It's about settling in. And settling in requires finding accommodation um, just for them to know their immediate environment. They need to know where they're settling in, what community. They need to engage with their community. Um, you know, And a lot of them come and live with their own families. And the job that they have a job offer with may be miles away and hours away. So then there's transport that come into play. And these families do not necessarily have the means to provide transport for them or that kind of wraparound support immediately when they land. So we're seeing being provided a sort of like secondary or third phase support. 
um, when the most critical need is when they land. They need to know where they're at, <laughs> get their bearings right. Uh, what is this country, New Zealand? What is the law? What can I do and what can I, what can't I do? I need to drive with, with you know, where do they are so lost? Added to that is the mental well-being shifting across to another country with completely different values and culture and people is a major mental shift. And there's no such support. We just, they just land and off they go. And what we've noticed is quite a lot of the people that we've dealt with come and live with families who themselves uh, way below the poverty line they're going through that cycle of financial you know illiteracy and and whatnot so we're just adding to the problem we're not we're not sort of providing a hand up so that newcomers into this country particularly from the pacific are given a different trajectory in life Metakimata, that's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Arirang.